You know, when the grace of God touches somebody's life, it's hard to stay the same. And, uh, you know, we like to hear how God has uh, been working in people's lives. And so today, we wanted to put someone before you uh, whose life we believe has been touched by the grace of God and uh, who we also believe is experiencing God's call on his life. Uh, recently, our advisory team, which is made up of lay leaders called trustees and uh, some of our lead pastors, uh, they got together and they unanimously voted to ordain J.C. Thompson. Uh, so, yes. So what does that mean? Uh, that means that in addition to believing that God is doing great work in this man's life, we also believe that God's call is on his life to be a pastor, to shepherd, to equip and encourage and guide others to pursue a relationship with Jesus. And so the ordination process began several years ago when we licensed JC to ministry. Uh, then our leadership began to observe him to see if uh, we agreed that God's call was really on his life. And so J.C. began working at Brookwood in 2008 uh, as the elementary production director. And then he became uh, pastor to fifth and sixth grades. Then he became pastor to our high schoolers. And now we have added family ministries pastor to his responsibilities. And so after observing him uh, these last several years, uh, the advisory team got together to ordain him. And we uh, gathered around him, laid our hands on him prayed for him, and so today on behalf of the advisory team, we present JC to you today as one we believe has God's call on his life to pastor and shepherd others. I'm going to ask uh, JC's wife Kristen and uh, JC's parents to stand. Uh, we just want to appreciate your support of JC. And we wanted to include you in this uh, affirmation of J.C. So if you agree with this decision to ordain J.C., please stand with us. Yes. J.C. is a talented young man, but talent and abilities are not qualifications for ministry. Because ministry is not a career. It's a calling. JC, do you believe that your life has been called by God to yes, serve sir. Him? Yes, sir. Well, then it's our pleasure to pray for you, and I'll just pray on behalf of all of you, and you pray along with me. Father God, I ask that your blessing would be on this young man. Lord, that you would grow him in, in wisdom and in skill and in talent. But Lord, most of all, I ask that you would conform him to your son. That through the years that there would be less of J.C. visible and more of Jesus Christ visible. God, would you call him to be a shepherd? One who loves the people, loves the sheep, and leads them gently caring for their well-being, not one who drives or scolds or is indifferent to those he leads. Father, I pray that you would help him to always listen to those he leads, but most of all, to hear you 
And I pray that you would enable him to be courageously loyal to your leading. Father, I pray that you would glorify yourself greatly in the life, the ministry, the family of J.C. Thompson. We pray in your blessed son's name. Amen. I might need some help. Y'all better stay out here. (laughs) Okay, we return to our series, which is on what book? And what is the series called? Oh, it's behind me. Y'all are, yeah, there you go. (laughs) That wasn't a difficult question. But what does it refer to so you know what? So that you know that you're saved born again, regenerated. There's not a more important question that could be offered to any person. These messages are intended to confirm faith, to offer assurance of salvation. You know, the need of our day, the need of our hour, our church, our community, our country is that people be born again, that they understand what it is to have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. The book of 1 John was written so that we can know the theme verse, and it's there on the top of your brochure. It's 1 John 5, 13. I have written this to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know you have eternal life. Now, how do we know? Our opinion's not sufficient. It's not even sufficient that someone else told us that we were or that we prayed a prayer or walked an aisle years ago. We attended a revival or possibly went to a youth camp and prayed. No, we have to examine ourselves, not look backward to an event, but look present by examining the evidence that's in our lives today to discover whether we're truly saved. 2 Corinthians 13, 5, we've looked at this several times. But it says, examine yourselves to see if your faith is genuine. Test yourselves. So today's message is a moral test. And it's focused on how I behave. You see, my attitudes and my actions reveal whether my faith is genuine. My true spiritual state shows through the way I act, through what I say. And others can see it, though sometimes we're blind to it ourselves. Eternal life is evidenced by at least three things that I've just extrapolated from this book. I'm preaching through 1 John, but I'm not preaching through it sequentially. One through five chapters. I'm actually pulling the themes from the book. As you know if you've been here the last couple of weeks. So the first evidence of eternal life. Is a refusal to practice sin. Turn in your Bibles to 1 John 2. Remember 1 John is toward the back of the Bible. 1 John chapter 2. Verse 3. And we can be sure that we know him if we obey his commandments. 
It doesn't say we can be sure that we know him if we can recite the facts of his life. We can be sure that we know him by looking closely at ourselves and him being Jesus. This isn't a reference to obeying the Ten Commandments. This is actually a reference to obeying the teaching of Jesus. Jesus didn't contradict the law, but he fulfilled the law and then he applied it anew. If someone claims, I know God, but doesn't obey God's commands, that person is a what? You don't believe that, do you? Let's read this one together. If someone claims, I know God, but doesn't obey God's commands, that person and not in truth. It's pretty strong, isn't it? This doesn't mean that obedience, good behavior, is a condition of forgiveness. We're not saved based on our behavior. We're justified, we're declared innocent by the grace of God. That's called justification. And it's not by any works that we do. That includes not walking an aisle, not praying a prayer. We're saved by the grace of God. Ephesians 2 verses 8 and 9. But our obedience provides evidence that we have been born again. Again, obedience is not a condition of being born again, but it's evidence of being born again. Is that clear? It follows. doesn't precede salvation. Knowing God, which this verse just referred to, involves a personal relationship that transforms practical behavior. Verse 5. But those who obey God's word truly show how completely they love him. And this is how we know we're living in him. Isn't it interesting that obeying God is not out of duress. It's not out of fear that we wouldn't be saved. We actually obey out of affection. Out of love for God. Out of relationship. Love is a transformative emotion. Love changes who you are and how you act. If you got married and it didn't change anything about you. You need to examine the quality of your love. Love causes you to want to please the object of your affection. Not out of fear of punishment. Not out of concern for rejection. Out of sheer affection. You understand that? Leanne's been looking for a pair of living room chairs for a few months. She got a great deal to sell hers, so we sold I have no comment about that. <laughs> but I just thought, you know, actually my daughter told me. 
you ought to help her find those chairs, you know, and, and, and help negotiate the price and everything with these chairs. So, you know what? I spent a couple of hours yesterday shopping for living room chairs. That's love. Because <laughs> I don't like to shop. Y'all did, did I have to tell you that? I, didn't, I don't like to shop. But I like to love. See the difference? Willful, deliberate disobedience displays indifference toward God. What do you think the opposite of love is? It isn't hate. The opposite of love is indifference. Because indifference has no feeling. At least hatred has some level of passion. Being cold toward God is the farthest from Him you can be. Willful, deliberate disobedience displays indifference toward God. Disrespect of His desires, which demonstrates a lack of a loving relationship with Him. Verse 6. Those who say they live in God should live their lives as Jesus did. How did Jesus live his life? He lived to please his Father. He put the Father's desires above his own. In fact, he denied his own self-centered desires, even the, de- even the desire to not suffer pain, the desire to not be rejected, the desire not to die, and certainly the desire not to be separated from his Father. But he put his Father's will above his own, even to the point that he gave up his life. Are we willing to live that way? Are we willing to deny what we want out of love for God? 1 John 3, verse 4. Everyone who sins is breaking God's law. Now, this is a reference to the law of Moses, which isn't only the Ten Commandments, but it includes the Ten Commandments. It's it's all the law that was given on on the Mount of Sinai. For all sin, and remember last week I told you that the Greek was hamartia, and what it means is missing the mark. And missing the mark is very exact. So if you shot an arrow, the only part that hits the mark is just the size of the point. Anything off of that point. So the Olympic 10 is far too big. You're missing the mark if you're anywhere but the dead center, the size of the point. All sin is missing the mark. All sin is contrary to the law of God. And you know that Jesus came to take away our sins. Think about this. And there's no sin in him. Anyone who continues to live in him will not sin. But anyone who keeps on sinning. doesn't know him or understand who he is. See, the primary reason that Jesus came, it just said it, was to do what? What did it just say? Take away sin. Now, I want you to hear this. 
The primary reason he came was not to grant us forgiveness and leave us where he found us. The primary reason he came was not to give us admission into heaven, but do nothing about the way we were living on earth. He came to take away sin. Not leave us trapped in sin. So you see, it's inconsistent for anyone who claims to be a Christian who shares the very life of Christ to continue in sin. Jesus' death certainly purchased our forgiveness. But his resurrection broke the power of sin. You don't have to sin. Do you believe that? This is a big, a, a, a big awareness. I don't have to sin. And if I do, you know why? I'm choosing to. Because what I want matters more than what God wants. Living in Jesus, verse 6, makes us different, better people. It makes us new creations. You are not the same as you were before you were born again. Do you know the difference? When you, when, before you're born again and you're continually stuck in sin, yes. You're a slave of sin before you're born again. When you're born again, you're a slave. But you know what, what are you a slave of? You're a slave of righteousness. Because the pull is toward obedience at that point. Not disobedience. And when we live in Jesus... We desire to please him by the way we use the lives that he purchased with his blood. This isn't something shallow. You, you prayed a prayer when you were eight. This is something that has transformed your being. You understand what I'm talking about? If we continue sinning, not caring that we do, it shows we don't have a personal love relationship with Jesus. And as verse 6 says, it shows we don't know him or understand who he is. If we would think he doesn't mind, we don't know who he is. At salvation, believers experience... Now, this, this doesn't happen. I'm not going to say this happens in 100% of, of us. It happens in the majority of us. You have to reflect back on when you were born again. But typically when we're born again, we have a recognition of the awfulness of sin. You know what I'm talking about? You experience the bitter taste of your lifestyle. You can't help but because the Holy Spirit of God has just flooded you. There is a new being within. So you suddenly see as awful what was ordinary before. Dramatic change. But in addition to recognizing the awfulness of sin, there's a real cleansing of sin. 
When the Spirit comes in, He strips out the sin. He separates us from that sin. You know what I'm talking about? you remember that, that day? So if you're all covered up in muck today, it's because you wandered back into the cesspool. Christians don't live disobediently, presuming on the forgiveness of God. Christians, now I, I said they practice sin. So remember, I'm not saying Christians have absolutely no sin. But what's your attitude towards sin? You see what I'm saying? Are you seeking, striving to live as closely to Jesus Christ as you can? To deny the lure the enticement that would lead you astray. 1 John 3, 7 and 8. Dear children, don't let anyone deceive you about this. When people do what is right, it shows they are righteous. Even as Christ is righteous. But when people keep on sinning, practicing sin, it shows they belong to the devil. Who has been sinning since, bef- since the beginning. The, the initial rebellion by Satan against God. The word devil is actually a title. Greek is diabolos. It means accuser or slanderer. So see the very one that entices you to sin. Then turns on you and points, points out your sin. It's a trap. But the son of God came to destroy the works of the devil. The devil, his, his proper name is Satan. He opposed God and God's plan for mankind. And Satan continues today to encourage rebellion against God. But here's what he does. The, the very time at which he's encouraging you to rebel, particularly churchgoers, he's also... Assuring you of your forgiveness. You don't see anything in the scripture. That gives you assurance. Of where you are. When you're living in sin. When you're rebelling against God. That's Satan's trick. You're just fine. Just where you are. When we sin casually. Carelessly. When we follow our own desires. Some of our desires aren't pure. Did you know that? Our desires can come from broken places within us. Emotional, bro- emotionally broken places. And when we sin in an ongoing manner. And again we presume on the forgiveness of God. We display evidence we don't belong to Jesus. We belong to Satan. You say well that's awful harsh. You know what? I, I know. You know, sometimes I don't, I don't look forward to preaching some of these biblical truths. But I can't deny what the scripture says. And I do you no good without bringing it to you. There's only two places to stand. People either belong to God or they belong to the devil. There's no middle ground. And you will resemble the God you worship. 
Now, you say, well, but, you know, I don't do things that are really that terrible. And I know a lot of people that don't really do things that are that terrible. And, and these are, some of these people don't even claim to be Christian. But they don't do things that are terrible. Right. Satan doesn't need or want us to do the most evil thing we could possibly imagine. We might shock ourselves. We might bring attention from other people. We may finally see where we stand. That's not, that's not his strategy. Remember, it's deception. Rather, he just wants you to be indifferent toward God. He wants you to just count on slipping through the gate into heaven, but don't be much worried about your lifestyle on earth. He just wants you complacent. No relationship, no love relationship thrives on complacency. Would y'all agree with that? I said, don't point, but if you have a complacent spouse right now, you are miserable in your marriage. No relationship functions well in complacency, and neither does a relationship with Jesus Christ. But a person who thinks he's a Christian, claims to be one, but lives indifferently toward God, lives complacently, in complacency about sin, is living in life's most dangerous spot. Because see, nothing extreme is going on that would awaken you to your peril. So you're in that place, you're really unlikely to discover you don't really know God. Until it's too late. Verse 9 of chapter 3. Those who have been born into God's family do not make a practice of sinning. Again. Because God's life is in them. Now the Greek here, and you see the little star on your translation. The, the literal word here is God's seed is in them. And they can't keep on sinning because they're children of God. You know what I'm talking about? I grew up in a dysfunctional home. I told you all that. I'm not proud of it. But I didn't enjoy close, intimate relationships with my parents. So you know what? My relationship with my parents had little influence on my behavior when I was not a Christian. But I remembered in college, and I was scheming something to do and I invited this guy he said I'm not doing that and I said why he said I don't want to do anything that could disappoint my parents I said your parents live in Gainesville we're in Statesboro but do you see what I was missing this fellow who was a college student my age cared that something he would do, a decision he would make, would wound his parents. You see the strength of that bond? I gave it absolutely no consideration. If we know God, everything we do affects him. And his opinion on every matter is important to us. That's what a relationship is like. 
You can't keep on sinning because you're a child of God. When the Holy Spirit regenerates people, he plants a seed of God's divine life in them. That's what it says. But this seed starts to grow and it starts to transform from within. 1 Peter 1 says that this this is an imperishable seed. So in other words, if if this principle of God is planted in you, and it, it comes in in the, in the person of the Spirit. But there's a, there's a God-likeness that gets planted in the new convert. And it, it starts growing as the Spirit cultivates it. And you know what it does? It conforms you to look like Jesus. And you look less like you. Jevy Lynn loves to tell me, oh, you know, Georgia boys are stubborn. And I said, Jevy Lynn, that doesn't have anything to do with being from Georgia. That has to do with sin. As a Christian grows closer to Jesus, sin loses its attractiveness. You know what I'm talking about? It becomes unpleasant. Then it even becomes repulsive. Because this sin violates the very life of Jesus that's now planted within you. You know what I'm talking about? You ever feel like, I have sinned against myself. I have sinned against who I am now. 1 John 3.10 So now we can tell who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Anyone who doesn't live righteously and doesn't love other believers doesn't belong to God. And I'll deal with other believers next week. 1 John 5, flip over a page. Verse 18. You see, I'm just scanning the subject, this topic, right through. We know that God's children do not make a practice of sinning. For God's Son holds them securely. See, it's not just you exercising willpower. If you know Christ, he holds you. You know what that feels like? You love your spouse, let's say. And you know what? There's something that you would do that would be so offensive and hurtful to that person. You can tell something's holding you. You're not doing it. Jesus holds us. Securely, and the evil one can't touch us. Now, you know what? He can tempt, but he can't control. We know that we're the children of God and that the world around us is under the control of the evil one. Whose child are you? Do you practice sin? Another behavior that evidences eternal life is the rejection of worldliness. Chapter 2, verse 15. Just the first part. Do not love this world nor the things it offers you. For when you love the world, you do not have the love of the Father in you. See, the love of the Father 
implants a desire to cease a door in this world. To stop craving what it offers. Are you fascinated, devoted to this world and what it offers? I'm not saying in this passage doesn't mean to reject every aspect of the world we live in. Including, you know, you reject all of creation, reject all of humanity. That's not what it's saying. Because we know in John 3.16, Jesus, that God loved the world. He created the world. So what John is warning about is devotion to the world system. You can feel it now, can't you? You can sense it. You have to be careful what you watch on television even. Media, culture, entertainment, morality, even education that's opposed to God. I mean, who of us would have ever thought that suddenly it's abhorrent to have a little manger scene, a a stable on a courthouse lawn? Or that putting the Ten Commandments somewhere is offensive. That makes no sense. Particularly since somehow Islam is not offensive. It's the world system opposed to God's kingdom. And we are seeing it in, in school. All this stuff about gender and all this stuff about use the bathrooms that you want. It's the world system that's marching against God's kingdom. That's what this is talking about. The world system John warns us about is visible in the moral and the ethical deterioration of contemporary culture. It's seen through humanism, through immorality, through promiscuity, through narcissism, through homosexuality, through materialism, through hedonism, which is just pleasure-seeking. All those things are against God's Word. And we don't fight and scream. and you know, we, we love people from those places where they've been captured. The world that we should reject is a way of life. It's a way of life that's man-centered. That has no respect, toward, respect for or obedience toward God. In other words, I'm the arbiter of my life. I determine right and wrong. You couldn't be farther from Scripture. This world system declares that we own our own lives and we have the right to do whatever we want with them. See, if when I say that, you say, well, well, isn't that right? It's not biblically right at all. We don't have independence from what God wants. We, we, we can't say, well, I don't have an obligation to anybody but myself. Nothing, that's, that's opposite of biblical teaching. You see, we belong to God. You only, As I said, you can only have it one of two ways. You belong to Satan, you belong to God. There's no middle ground. And the scripture says, if you're a believer, then you've been purchased by the blood of Christ. 1 Corinthians 6.20 1 John 2.15 Back to that says 
For when you love the world, you do not have the love of the Father in you. This isn't Perry saying it. Remember, the, remember my rule. My, the principle, anytime you hear me saying something that's not reflective of what this Bible says, you know what to do with what I say, you kick it out. The love of the Father likely refers to both the love that God has for you and the love you have for Him. His love generates our love. And then John gives examples of what Christians should guard against. In verse 16. For the world offers only a craving for physical pleasure. Some translations in what we know it commonly is lust of the flesh. And it includes um, primarily sexual sins. But also any, any other uncontrolled desire or ap- appetite. You know a lot of our abuses come from um, normal appetites that are just out of control. Because we're trying to seek through satisfying appetites what should only and can only be satisfied in relationship with Christ. A craving for everything we see. That's lust of, you know what? Lust of the eyes. Lust of the eyes. Coveting what's visually appealing. Materialism, greed, I got to have it. Somebody, oh, I got this brand new car. Oh, my goodness, he's got the newest car. I want to tell you all a secret y'all didn't know. Automakers deliberately change the body style. You know why? Because otherwise you wouldn't buy a new car as long as the motor runs and the air conditioning runs in the south. But, but they have to make yours outdated as soon as they possibly can. So instead of round headlights, you have square headlights. Well, you ought to see mine. I got those headlights and they zoom all the way around the side. I got to have it. I got to have it. Why? The world system, you see that? And pride in our achievements and possessions. You know, when you think about when you get a glimpse of God, it is ridiculous that we would glory in ourselves. Want attention, want celebrity, the ego, the boastfulness. It doesn't make any sense if we've ever caught a glimpse of God. It would be embarrassing that someone elevates us. These are not from the Father, they're from the world. Now, this lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, Satan tempts us all this way. But you know what? He tempted Eve that way in the Garden of Eden. Read it, Genesis 3. She saw it, and she knew it would taste good, and it promised something wonderful. And Satan tempted Jesus in the wilderness in the same way. You hungry? Turn these stones into bread. Get up on the pinnacle of the temple and jump off. And you know, you're somebody special. You'll be caught, and I'll give you all... All the kingdoms of the world, lust of the flesh, hunger, lust of the eyes, all rule over all the kingdoms, pride of life. You're somebody special. You'll be called. Same way. Satan tempted Christ. He tempted Eve. He tempts us the same way. Now, again, I'm not saying that all human desires are inherently evil. 
Our natural desires are part of God's creation. And they're not evil unless they're used in a way that violates His Word. But we are not ever to feel the inner brokenness by satisfying our desires. Only Christ can satisfy desires. Believers aren't immune from the world's enticements. I've said, I've, you know, all of us sin. James 1.10 says that. We would say we're not sinners, we're liars, and the truth isn't in us. But Christians' desire is to resist the temptation. To resist the seduction. To break free of it. See, it's your attitude. It's the way you're leaning. And when you hear this, well, everybody sins. You're leaning the wrong way. The right response is, you know what? This is sin. And I'm going to pray and fast and get some help to get out of it. 1 John 2, 17. And this world is fading away. Along with everything that people crave. But anyone who does what pleases God will live forever. History is not an endless cycle that will last forever. I don't care whether you believe in global warming, cooling, climate change. This planet was never intended to last indefinitely. When God created it, he appointed an end time. And this world is speeding toward a conclusion willed by God. It is hurtling toward judgment. The kingdom of this world that's opposed to God and faith will not last. It will be destroyed. But God's kingdom, God's plan, God's purpose will last forever. So what's your attitude toward this world? Are you controlled by this world? And do you desire what it offers? Though you know it's contrary to what God wants. A third behavior that evidences eternal life is confidence to approach God. 1 John 3, 19. Our actions will show that we belong to the truth. So we will be confident when we stand before God. And even if we feel guilty, God is greater than our feelings and He knows everything. When we know that we know God, when we know we've been born again, we, when we have love for His Son, we can have confidence of standing before Him at Judgment Day. Now, we may have guilt, some guilt because you know what? All of us know there's, well, there's something in my life that's not quite right. And you know, Right now, ask God to show you what needs to change. But God, you see, knows all our sins. We don't even recognize all our sins. You know, for me to say, well, I know all my sins. It's these three. Two things. One, I'm claiming that I know everything about myself. That isn't true. That I see myself perfectly honestly. That's not true. Two, that I can define sin equally to God. Obviously, that's not true either. We don't even know what all the sins are within us. The Spirit will reveal them if we ask. But there's sins in our lives that we're not even aware of. But God is aware of them all. And He forgives our sins. He covers our guilt. And God's forgiveness, you see, it says, isn't based on our feelings. Even if you have some, some guilt, 
your forgiveness is not based on your feelings. Your gift forgiveness is based on your faith. And what faith means is dependence on the grace of God, not on your goodness. We're forgiven because of Christ's perfect life, not because of our imperfect ones. This feeling that that we have of guilt or regret for sins we've committed or mistakes we've made might even be a form of assurance of salvation. Because you know what? When you're far from God, you don't feel guilty about anything. Especially little things. But when we become more filled with the Spirit, we also become more sensitive of the sin that we have. The sin against us is sin against God. So our attitude towards sin is changed along with our nature. We're new creatures, 2 Corinthians 5, 17. So we want to rid ourselves of sin. We want to, to no longer, we want to stop excusing, minimizing, rationalizing, justifying disobedience. So how do you feel? Do you fear judgment day? Or are you confident you're a new creature? Not perfect, but strive in that direction. Our assurance of salvation also enables us to pray with confidence. 1 John 3, 21. Dear friends, if we don't feel guilty, we can come to God with bold confidence. And we will receive from Him whatever we ask because we obey Him and do the things that please Him. The Greek word that's translated bold confidence describes the privilege of coming to someone of great importance, of power, of authority, of high position. But we're coming not fearful. We're coming feeling free to express whatever is on our mind, to speak openly, to speak plainly, to speak frankly. For believers, it means that you can come into the presence of your heavenly Father. And you recognize who he is and you have all over his personhood. But you're not afraid of him. You have assurance that he cares about what you have to say. And you know you'll receive what you ask. Well, I don't always receive what I ask. Now look closely what it says. We receive what we ask because we obey him. And we do the things that please him. How much time are you spending in prayer? How much time in God's presence? How much time fasting? As we spend time with God, as we become more sensitive to being led by the Spirit and having the mind of Christ, our lives become more closely aligned with His. So we ask, we make requests, we ask for prayers that are in alignment with His will. Boldness in prayer is clear evidence of a changed life. Do you pray boldly? Soul training this week. You can even start it right now. Ask yourself, what do my actions and my attitudes reveal about the reality of my faith? Ask God's Spirit to show you. You know, we have counselors here at the front every week. And they're here for a variety of reasons. It may be that something that I said, God spoke through. And you have some concern about where you are spiritually. Come down and pray with someone. Talk to someone. Take some steps toward 
real faith. It may be that there's just some issue in your life that you have hidden away and you're continuing to practice and you know it's wrong. Ask someone to pray for you. You don't have to confess it. Just say, I've got something in my life that needs to change. Would you pray that God's Spirit would pry this out of my mind, my emotions, my heart? It may be that you have an illness and you want someone, you'd like someone to pray for you, anoint you with oil. We do it every week. We've already seen some miracles. God's a miracle working God, not in every instance, but in some instances. And it might be yours. So let me urge you. The counselors will be here. I think you're left alone right now, David. I'll pray. And as, as I pray, after I pray, you can come forward. And then the rest of you are dismissed. Father God, do a work in us. Help us to stop hiding away our sins, justifying them, explaining them away. Show us whether we're indeed your children. And help us, Lord, know that to love you is to live a holy and obedient life. We thank you for your son who died so we could be forgiven. So we could escape enslavement to sin. Amen. Thank you for coming.